Well, again, good morning. So glad that you have uh, chosen to worship here. Uh, my name is Nathan. I'm the campus pastor here at the Olathe campus of, of Christ Community. Uh, it's great to be together. As Chris said, beautiful, uh, beautiful summer, uh, beautiful time together, beautiful time to be able to engage here in this place and worship of this, of this great God. If you've been with us, we've been asking the question, does it really matter uh, about uh, the core things of our faith? Uh, and this morning we're asking that about the cross, what Jesus has accomplished for us through his death and resurrection. Let me pray and ask God to help us as we do that. God, I'm so thankful for your love, for your mercy. God, for your um, unending forgiveness. God, I'm, I'm thankful that you are God and that we aren't. And so, God, I pray that now in these moments, um, God, we all come here for different reasons, uh, with different things on our minds, different distractions, heartaches, and joys alike. So, God, I pray that in the midst of all of that, you would allow us to hear what you want us to hear. That through your spirit, you would change us, that you would mold us, convict us, encourage us, and comfort us when we need comfort. And God, I pray that in all of these things, we would walk away praising our great Savior and what he has accomplished for us. And so it's for his glory that we pray. Amen. Okay, so... Jim Gaffigan is probably one of my, one of my favorite com- comedians, um, and uh, this is his, his recent book, Dad is Fat, you know, clever title. Um, in, in this book, there's a, the part where he, he goes off on the inevitability of guilt, how we all feel it and, and experience it so, so deeply sometimes, and particularly about parental guilt. Okay, some of you can probably relate. Okay, let me, let me read part of it. He says, I wasn't ready for the guilt of being a parent. I was raised Catholic, so guilt is a familiar friend. Guilt is as much a part of the Catholic culture as rooting for Notre Dame. I felt guilty for feeling good, for feeling bad, for feeling nothing. Attending confession was supposed to alleviate some of the guilt, but I always ended up feeling guilty for not telling the priest everything I felt guilty about. So I stopped going to confession. Then I felt guilty that I stopped going to confession. That's a lot of guilt. Just when I thought that nothing could top Catholic guilt, I became acquainted with parental guilt, which totally puts Catholic guilt to shame. Sorry, Catholic guilt. Now I feel guilty for shaming you. Well, (laughs) at least you know how I feel. Okay, anybody else, right? Um, Man, I I, I feel that, right? as a parent, I almost always feel like a failure, right? Just feel guilty. But, I mean, the reality is you don't have to be a parent, right? You don't have to be a Christian or a, a Catholic to feel the same. I mean, the, the reality is I, I'm, I'm convinced that you, you may not believe in God or the Bible or Jesus or any of it, but you can't not believe in guilt. I just don't think it's possible. In fact, I, I read a, a, an article in an online science journal this past week uh, science 2.0. So this article was just, just published, uh, not written from any, any faith perspective a- at all. And here's, here's the title, if you can see it. Scientists discover that atheists might not exist. And that's not a joke, they clarify. And it's a, it's a fascinating article because it goes on and talks about how scientists are finding more and more that there is genetic evidence for a, a kind of hardwiring for some sort of belief in the supernatural. Uh, that something, something is there. And, and in fact, it goes on and, and describes how even the most committed atheists can't quite seem to shake some sort of remnants 
of this belief in the supernatural and justice and guilt and, and all of those kinds of things. And so at one point they write, it shouldn't come as a surprise since we are born believers, not atheists, scientists say. Humans are pattern seekers from birth with a belief in karma or cosmic justice as our default setting. Essentially, that we are born with an ability to, to feel and see guilt. But you, you just, you can't escape it. And the article gives lots of illustrations of this. It's a long article. I'd encourage you to, to find it. If you Google it, you'll be able to read it. Um, lots of illustrations. One of, one of them in particular that sort of grabbed me is that the author argues that we see this in every story we humans create. That in every story, it doesn't matter who wrote it or, or what it is, or what that person believes, that God is always a character in that story. I mean, often implicitly, right? Very rarely in, in an explicit sort of way. But he talks about this because in every story, uh, the character's moral decisions leads them somehow to their ultimate destiny. That there's some sort of mechanism, whether it's God or karma or something else, mechanism guiding them along in this, this path. And, and we long for it as, as viewers, as, as readers, don't we? We, we long for, for consequences, good or bad, and we long for them to, to fit the actions, Right? And so, for example, he writes, if a tale ended with Harry Potter being tortured to death and the Dursley family dancing on the grave, the audience would be horrified, of course, but also puzzled. That's not what happens in stories. Something is objectively right and objectively wrong. And we're hardwired to see it. And it's not just scientific theory. It's not just in, in stories, cute or otherwise. It's in here, right? Just as Gaffigan suggests, I feel my guilt. I feel it as a parent, of course. I feel it as a, as a husband and as a pastor. I, I feel it as a son and as a brother and a friend and pretty much any possible way that I could. I feel it at times. That sense of shame and, and condemnation because I know I'm not, I'm not good enough. I know that somehow, even though I don't fully understand, that somehow I don't measure up. And it's obvious to me. And it's really easy to hate myself for it. So what do we do about it? That nagging sense of guilt. Do we ignore it? Well, any therapist will tell you that only leads to more self-destructive behavior, right? Right? I mean, psychologists argue more and more that one of the primary reasons we get into the addictions that consume us is that nagging sense of shame, right? I mean, we run to food or sex or alcohol or work or shopping or whatever we can to distract us from that sense. So if, if that doesn't work, do we just accept ourselves? You know, learn a few good uh, self-esteem tactics and, and move on. Well, if you hear a couple of weeks ago, right, we showed that clip from Breaking Bad, and we saw it just doesn't work, right? The guilt-heavy Jesse Pinkman, he couldn't possibly just accept himself. He couldn't accept that what he was done, what he'd done was, was okay, and I don't, I don't think any of us can. So maybe we should just try harder. It's probably the default mode for many of us. Maybe that's even why you're here this morning. But how's that working out for you? The reality is everything that we try... 
Every attempt at self-improvement or escape or self-medication, it all leads with condemnation just sort of lurking behind the, the corner. I think we all experience it, don't we? We feel it deep within. Except with Jesus. Only, only the cross. God has to do it for us. And in Jesus, friends, there is nothing left to condemn you. The only freedom from guilt and shame, the only hope in our despair, if you are a Christian, if that is who you are, no matter what anybody else tells you, no matter what yourself tells you, no matter what your, 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 the guilt that you feel or the voices around you, no matter what you hear from the people you work with or in, on television, no matter what it is, if you are a believer in Christ, there is nothing left to condemn you. Now, together as a church, right, as I said at the start, we've been going through this summer asking, does it really matter about the core things that we believe? The, the central truths of the Christian faith. And so this morning we're asking, does it really matter what we believe about, about the cross, about the resurrection, about what Jesus actually accomplished for us? Does it matter? I mean, think about it, for example, right? I mean, this, this death, this event 2,000 years ago, the most talked about death in the history of the world. 2,000 years ago, and we're still talking about it. And the fact that we decorate our churches and our homes and our bodies with crosses, right? This implement of the most brutal torture and execution ever invented. And it's home decor, right? And we sing about it. Anybody else think that's a little weird? Sing about death and, and blood and crucifixion and all these sort of, you know, fairly morbid thoughts. Why? Why do we do it? Well, in order for us to get there, there are three things that we need to see on that cross. We need to see ourselves on the cross. We need to see God on the cross. And we need to see life unleashed on the cross. And we see that in this scripture that we heard read just a moment ago. First, you've, you've got to see you on the cross. I've got to see myself on the cross. We are supposed to be dead right now. You and me, we shouldn't be here. They crucified the wrong guy. And, and it's easy to sort of, you know, I mean, my sins, I mean, I do this plenty, right? Pastor or not, my sins are not that bad. They're okay. I'm trying my hardest. I kind of sweep my guilt under the rug and assume that no one really actually had to die in order to rescue me. And yet, I mean, if we, we were to go back a couple weeks, right, when we talked about the human condition, we saw that we, we're children of Adam. And in Adam, we are all condemned, for we all sin and we will all die. Paul says it right here. In Colossians chapter 2, 13, there's just a couple of verses that we're talking through this morning. In Colossians 2.13, right, he started off, he said, and you, he's talking to the church, right, the church at Colossae, writing to them, gathered together, and you, who were dead in your trespasses and the uncircumcision of your flesh. See, death was a consequence of Adam's rebellion, and the apple didn't fall too far from the tree. The dead is real, and we know it. I mean, you can think positive thoughts, right? You could pay somebody $100 an hour to tell you that you're okay. But you know better 
don't you? I mean, if you don't, maybe if you're, if you're still sort of wrestling with this idea of guilt, imagine with me uh, for a moment, imagine if we humans, we lived in a world in which every one of us could read each other's thoughts. Every secret, every regret, every impulse that I have instantly available to every one of you. And I could see all of yours. And the people sitting around you could see all of yours. And you could see all of theirs. Anybody want to live in a world like that? No way. Are you kidding me? I think, honestly, I think I'd rather be dead than, than be surrounded by that much shame. And we feel it, don't we? We feel our shame. We feel our guilt. We know that because we, we want to hide. We want to run. And yet it's a real thing, this guilt that Paul talks about. Because Paul says that there is a record of debt, he says, right? You see that? record of debt that stood against us with its legal demands. That my my guilt isn't merely a a feeling. Uh, It's not simply a a social construct or a product of my upbringing. But that it's it's a real um, moral reality of of, of objective failure before a, a holy God. And he calls it a record of debt. I mean, essentially, that there is an IOU on every one of our consciences. An IOU. And that that means that you can't just say you're super sorry. Right? There's a debt that that must must be paid. And the reality is, the collection agency is death. And it, it is coming for every one of us. And unless we start here, unless we see ourselves up there on that cross... That it was we who should have died, we who should have been condemned, judged, experiencing the wrath of God. Unless we see that, then there is everything in the world left to condemn us. But we can't stop there, can we? I mean, if you just see yourself on the cross and we're right back where we started, guilty, shamed, you've got to see God on the cross. Not just you, and not just a man, a mere mortal. God himself. You see, one of the perks of, of being God uh, is that you can do whatever you want, right? I can only imagine, right? It's got to be kind of nice for God. He can do whatever he wants. It's part of the definition of being God. And so if he wants light, let there be light, okay? Uh, if he wants a latte, same story. If he wants to, to forgive his creatures, can't do it. He can't, he can't just say you're forgiven. There are things believe it or not, that even God cannot do. For example, God can't make a square circle. Some of you are going to be thinking about that for the rest of the morning, right? He can't, he can't do it. He can't make a rock so big that he can't lift it. And God cannot just forgive. It, w- it would go against his, his character. I mean, if the debt is real and God is truly just, then payment must be made and the penalty is death. He cannot simply say, I forgive you. There has to be more to the story. I mean, what would you say to a, to a judge who let, let a guy off for murder because the guy said he was sorry? I mean, we'd cry out for, for justice, right? We, we would demand judgment in that situation. If, if debt is real, somebody's got to pay for my sins. If the debt is real, somebody has to pay. And so the question we have to wrestle with, is there a way for God to destroy the evil that lives in our world and the evil that lives in here, in my heart, is there a way for him to destroy that without destroying me? Without destroying you? 
Listen again to these words. Paul says, And you, who were dead in your trespasses and the uncircumcision of your flesh, God made alive together with him, having forgiven us all our trespasses. How? By canceling the record of debt that stood against us with its legal demands. This he set aside, nailing it to the cross. Okay, Sometimes I think we underestimate how brilliant Paul can be, right? His, his, his logic, his philosophy. I mean, he's a, he's a brilliant individual writing these things, and so it's easy for, them to, to, for us to miss them, right? But our, our sin, my sin is infinite, okay? At the end of the day, my sin is infinite, uh, not because I'm infinite, but because I have sinned against an infinite being, okay? But I'm, I'm finite. And, and what that means, if you're, if you're following this, try, try hard. I, I know it's easy to get lost. I'm kind of getting lost even while I'm talking. Um, so only, only God then, who is infinite, can pay off an infinite debt. No finite being could ever do it. It's impossible because it, we're too limited as humans. And so for God to rescue us, the only way rescue could, could possibly happen if our debt is infinite is for him as an infinite being to take that debt for us. For him to, to suffer in our place, to, to take that condemnation, the wrath. That's why it's so important that we believe that Jesus wasn't just merely a man, but was fully God. Theologians refer to this as, as substitutionary atonement. The idea that Jesus substituted himself for us, that he, he died in our place. And I think that's what Paul means here when he says that the record of, of debt against us has been nailed to the cross. It's not just poetic language that Paul is using. I mean, it is a beautiful thought, right, that our, our sins have been nailed to the cross, and we, we sing about it, and it, it's great and wonderful, but it's not mere poetry that he's speaking. Because back then, when, when somebody was executed on the cross, when they were crucified, uh, their sins were written out and nailed to the cross. That's why the Romans wrote king of the Jews, on top of Jesus' cross, right? That was, in their minds, that was his crime, that he was claiming to usurp Rome, to be the king of the Jews. But what were his crimes really? Or, or more of what, what should it have said above his cross, above his head? My name? Followed by all of my acts of treason against him which would be a really long list. And then your name, and all of your acts of treason, and then all of us. That's, that's what should have been written up there, right? That Jesus, the innocent one, he claimed our crimes as his own and said, punish me. Let me pay the debt. Don't ever look at a cross without seeing your name emblazoned on the top. Don't do it. I mean, that, that's how they should come, right? In many ways, it should, should come right there, right in the center. It should say, your name here. Because that's, that's who Jesus died for. That's, that, those were his crimes. The things that, that we have done, he took our place. And John Stott, he summarizes it well. He says, for the essence of sin is man substituting himself for God, while the essence of salvation is God substituting himself for man. Now, there are a couple of objections here when we talk about this, this, this idea of substitution and atonement and all that. Two, two primary objections. Um, one, some would say, well, isn't this, isn't this cosmic child abuse, right? 
God punishing his son, you know, pouring out his wrath on him, this innocent one, uh, for somebody else's crimes. I mean, it just is cosmic child abuse. Well, I don't think so. Um, and for two reasons in particular. One, Jesus signed up for this gig. Uh, nobody twisted his arm into it. He did it out of love for us. Um, so he volunteered for it. And second, Jesus is God right? I mean, that's part of this, this idea that we believe in, in the Trinity, that, that God himself was there on the cross, that he is the one who absorbed his wrath for us, taking our sins, that he, he paid the penalty on our behalf. In fact, that's kind of what Paul said just a few verses earlier about Jesus. He said, for in him, the whole fullness of deity dwells bodily, that it was God himself who willingly substituted himself for us. Now, the other objection to this idea of death and blood and wrath and all that, it just feels archaic, right? I, I get that. I, I identify more with that one than the other one in some ways. It just, it feels so, I mean, really God has to punish in order to forgive and, and wrath being poured out on Jesus instead of us. I mean, it just feels so sacrificed and just kind of strange, doesn't it? And so it'd be very easy in, in that situation and some say that, well, you know, Jesus, he died. He didn't, he didn't die because he had to. He didn't die because he, in order to forgive us, he died to show us that he loves us. Many say this. He died to show us what it looks like to love one another and to love each other. And at first thought, it's like, well, okay, we do learn a lot about God's love by that action. But the more you think about that, I mean, put it this way. Um, if I were to say, you know, Christ community, I love you guys, and I, I want to show you how much I love you, and I want to show you how, how you ought to love one another, and so I, I jump in a lake and I drown myself. Anybody okay with that? No, seriously, right? You're not okay with that, right? I mean, don't be okay with that. That's senseless. It's ridiculous. Why would anybody, I mean, that's, that's meaningless suicide. It's not, that's not love. That's not caring. It's, it's stupid. And yet, change the story just a little bit. You, individually, you are drowning in that lake, and I jump in, and I rescue, and I drown in the midst of rescuing you. That's not senseless at all. I mean, that death there, that's heroic. And that, that is what Jesus has done on our behalf. And if you don't see both yourself on the cross and the God who made you on the cross, if we don't see that, if we don't embrace that, then there is everything in the world left to condemn us. But if you see yourself there, and him there for you. If you've confessed your sins to him, if you, if you have placed your dependence, right, your, your hope, your trust on him, if you are a Christian, you should also see, we should, I should see life unleashed on the cross. For there is nothing left to condemn us. Your debts cannot condemn you. Death cannot condemn you. The deceivers cannot condemn you. Paul is, it brings all this out here, and this, this ought to change everything about the way that we live, that, that our debts, my debts, cannot condemn us. I mean, because every, every one of us comes here with regrets, don't we? I mean, some of us with regrets so, so deep, myself included, that you will carry them with you as long as there is breath in your lungs. Some of you know exactly what I'm talking about. And we, we think, well, come on, this is church, right? We all look so clean and nice and happy and we know how to put on the smile and all that things to make sure everybody thinks that life is just fine for us. But the reality is, I mean, what is your record of debt? What would be emblazoned on the cross for all to see and read about your story? 
about who you are. Would it be adultery? Pornography or any variety of sexual sin? Would it be abortion or divorce or abuse or gluttony or alcoholism or greed or idolatry or fear or deception or anger or manipulation or alienation or destruction or anything else that I may have forgotten? Deep, deep shame. Paid. In full. Absolutely clear. That's what, he, that's what he says, right? He says, having forgiven us all our trespasses by canceling the record of debt that stood against us with its legal demands. This, he set aside, nailing it to the cross. And not just paid, obliterated. And not just canceled. I mean, you see that word there, depending on your translation, or at least up here, that word cancel. I mean, that's, that's a fine translation that works, but it's, it's kind of weak, right? It's, it's, it's uninspiring. The Greek is, is so much better. Um, back in, in Bible college and seminary, I had um, really years of my life where all it really felt like I ever did was study vocab cards, um, for Greek and Hebrew. I mean, just l- breakfast, lunch, dinner. I, had, I mean, I still have like stacks and stacks of these old vocab cards. Well, we, we made you one uh, this morning. Um, they're along the aisle. Here, go ahead and take one, pass it down. And, and we don't do this often, right? Because we believe that our English Bibles are, are able for us, we're able to understand them, okay? We have good translations. And so uh, you are not lost, right? If you don't know Greek and Hebrew. And yet occasionally there are moments in which it just stands out more, more brightly in the original languages, and so this, this word, I want you to, to know it. I want you to memorize it. I want you to put this card someplace important in your life. Okay, the word is exalepho. Everybody? Okay, say it with me. The first service was terrible at it. Try it. Okay, ready? One, two, three. Exalepho. Exalepho. Turn to the back. Here's the definition. To cause something to cease by obliterating any evidence, to eliminate, to do away with, to wipe out. To cause something to cease by obliterating any evidence. I love that. But that's, that's what Jesus has done with your sins, with, you, with your record of debt. It's not, it's not mere forgiveness. I mean, sometimes when, when we think of coming to, to Jesus, we feel like, you know, my, my slate's been wiped clean, right? Get a clean slate, get a start over. That's not true at all. With Christ, the slate is gone. There is no more slate in your life. It's, it's been obliterated, destroyed, destroyed. Even the evidence of our rebellion against him has been wiped away without any evidence left, it says, in, in, in God's eyes. That we, we are we're seen that way, that that means that any of it, any shameful mistake, any failure you've made, any of your debts, both past, present, and future, cannot condemn you. There is no more slate. And if, and if that is true, I mean, if, if we can believe that together, if we believe what these words teach, that if this is true of us, this is how God sees us, then rest and rejoice in his forgiveness. Because debt inhibits freedom, doesn't it? All right, we all know that. We've all been there. Maybe, maybe you are there. Debt, debt 
ruins joy, doesn't it? I mean, you, you can imagine, right? You hear about this all the time, that college students graduating, mountains of debt, unable to find work, right? You can just only imagine how difficult that would be. And some of us here, right? Mountains of, of credit card debt. You, you feel that. And the ironic part about that, when you were making those charges, it probably really felt like freedom, didn't it? Because you can buy whatever you want. Right? I'll pay for it later. It felt like freedom. It felt, it felt like joy for a moment. And yet, deep down, I mean, you realize it, don't you? You are a slave to your creditors. They own you. And it is, it is with pain and fear and drudgery that you have to pay that back. But, but this here, our debt has been paid in full. So does that mean we like get to go on sinning, right? Almost as if God just sort of raised the credit limit and we can keep charging, right? No, I don't, I don't think so, right? I don't think so at all. In fact, I mean, just, just imagine, right? If you're in a situation, um, let's, let's say you're in a place where you, you owe more than you could ever possibly pay off. I mean, an unimaginable amount. And, and yet day after day, week after week, you hopelessly work and strive every bit of effort to pay off your debt. And you know it'll never be paid. But then imagine one day the, the man you owe comes up to you and he says, you know, it's, it's gone. It's done. I paid your debt. You are free. What happens in that moment? In some ways, your debt just got a whole lot bigger, didn't it? But it's a different kind of debt now. Instead of one of, of fear and slavery, of drudgery and duty, it's, it's one of love and loyalty. Uh, instead of a, a debt to, to slavery, it's, it's gratitude, joy, it's delight. Everything changes in that moment. Which means that we can rest and we can rejoice. You don't have to earn God's approval anymore. I mean, do you believe that? You don't have to earn his approval. You don't have to make him like you right? Or, or try your best to clean yourself up so that he might love you and take care of you. Or that you don't have to do that anymore. He, he loves you. He accepts you. If, you. if you are his, that's the way it works. And you don't have to earn anybody else's approval either. Because if the God of the universe accepts you, then what are we really worried about with everybody else? It means you can love and, and serve others. It means that we can make good choices, that we can sacrifice, that we can honor him with our lives, not out of duty, but delight. Maybe you think, no, not me, Nathan. <laughs> oh, man, you don't know what I've done. You don't know my past. You don't, you don't even know what I'm still struggling with, and it's pretty bad. But these words, they're for you. Friends, if, you're, if you belong to Jesus, your slate hasn't just been wiped cleaned. It's been obliterated. It's gone. And there is nothing in the world left that can condemn you. And if our debts cannot condemn us, then neither can debt, death. If our debts cannot condemn us, then neither can death. Because remember, death is the, the ultimate consequence of our, of our sin. It's the true imposter. Right? It doesn't belong in the, the good world that God made. We let death in when we chose to rebel against God. And that's, that's why we fear it, why we hate it, why we grieve it, why we will do anything we possibly can to avoid it. We know death doesn't belong. But death is dead. It, it died when Jesus rose from the grave, and death cannot 
condemn you. It's what Paul said essentially at the start, right? He said, and you who were dead, God made alive together with him. Because the reality is you cannot just see yourself up on the cross. Identifying with Jesus and his, and his suffering and his pain on our behalf. You can't just see it there. You have to also see yourself getting up out of that tomb with him. Walking new and resurrected with him. I mean, that's what baptism is, isn't it? I mean, it's, it's just a picture, right? A symbol. We're going to do that in a couple weeks, as Chris said. But baptism is a beautiful symbol that when we, when we baptize somebody, right? That we put them under the water. It's as if they're dead and buried with Christ. Gone. The old, the old them, then we raise them up to new life, right? It's just a symbol, but it's a beautiful picture of, of what Christ has done, that we walk out of the grave with him. That's, that's what Paul is saying, that we've been made alive with him. And it's a life that begins now and extends forever. But without Jesus, I mean, without what he did on the cross, and I don't think there's anything in the world scarier than death. I mean, really? I mean, because... When the Bible talks about death, it's not just talking about physical death. It begins there, but it doesn't end there, right? It talks about spiritual death. That whether we like it or not, the Bible talks about a place called hell, a place of eternal judgment. That that ultimately, those who want nothing to do with God in this life, they get what they want. Life without God forever, completely separated from him. There's nothing scarier than death. And really, I mean, even if you're a Christian, the idea of death is, is still scary. I'm afraid. Aren't you afraid of death at least a little bit? But if death cannot condemn us, then do not fear what has no power. Do not fear what has no power. We've been dealing with this a little bit at home. Actually, a lot of bit at home. Uh, and it's my fault. It almost always is, okay? Every, yeah, it's, everything's my fault. I'm just going to own it right now. Kelly's not here, so I can say that. Um, but, okay, so I'm, I'm reading The Hobbit to the kids. They're five and seven. And, you know, The Hobbit is great, right? It's about Bilbo Baggins and Gandalf the wizard and the dwarves and all that. And they're fighting against the, the terrible, horrible smog, right? The, 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 the dreadful dragon in the book. It's great, right? Who doesn't love that? Well, as, as a result of this, um, my kids have made it very, very clear that this, uh, this lovely, innocent toy dragon, you see this? Uh, he's been banished from the entire upstairs of our house for the duration. Um, I mean, they, they've made it entirely clear that they will not sleep anywhere where he is even close to being present, Okay? We actually made a little bit of progress over the weekend. Uh, they said that he could be upstairs near their room as long as we took his head off. So <laughs> he's like sitting there, dead, then it's okay. And the great part about this is, I mean, they're five and seven, okay? They know this is ridiculous. I mean, they know it. I mean, they, I asked them if I could share this. They, they said it could because they know it's, 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 it's ridiculous. It's just a toy. It has no power. It can't possibly do anything to them. But man, that reminds me of me. Because that's That's death. Death has no power over me. Death will not have the last word in my story. It will not have the last word. Death cannot condemn me. And death is no longer the worst thing. And when our faith overpowers our fear, when that actually happens, we're able to take risks. 
we're, we're able to, to step out in faith, we're able to give ourselves away, we stop worshiping our God of security. And we begin to end our obsession with our mere 70 years here. That's all we can think about, isn't it? But isn't that just a blip in light of forever? Of course, I say all this, and I still prefer to sleep with a dragon in the other room, right? Or at least with its head broken off. But you get the idea. Your debts have nothing on you. Death cannot overtake you, and finally, the deceivers cannot condemn you. Now, this is a little bit of a tricky one for us, because we prefer not to think about, like, spiritual powers, right, and those kind of mysterious kind of things, you know. Uh, we, we block that out. We, we feel like, you know, we're past that. It's 21st century, all that. It's, frankly, it just kind of weirds me out. I'm not going to lie to you. But that's, that's where Paul goes, right? Look, look what he says. Not only has he obliterated sin and given us life, verse 15, he disarmed the rulers and authorities and put them to open shame, by triumphing over them in him. That there's an unseen battle around us. We don't understand it. There's way more mystery here than often we like to admit. But the reality is that anything that would accuse us or deceive us, that the very forces of hell itself points points its finger at us, at each one of us, and cries out, guilty, Shame, judgment, death. But he's disarmed them. Literally, it's another fun Greek word here, that God has stripped them naked. Stripped them naked and laid them open for public shame. I love that because that's what God should have done to us, right? Instead of us being exposed and put to shame, He puts anyone who would accuse us, anything that could possibly accuse us, come between us. He puts them to shame, and they have no power. For Jesus and his death not only removes our guilt, and so often that's what we focus on, right? Our need for forgiveness. I think that's because we we know it. We we feel that, that we need to be forgiven for, for the bad things that we do, all of that. But it's more than that. He also gives us his righteousness, His beauty, his goodness, so that when God looks at you, warts and all, when he looks at you, he sees someone as spotless and lovable and whole as Jesus himself. And and those who would accuse us then, I mean, if that's how God sees us, those who accuse us, of course they don't have any power, because that's how God looks at us. That's what he sees when he, when he sees me, when he sees you. They don't, they don't have any power. It's like, it's like the old hymn, right? It goes, when, when Satan tempts me to despair and tells me of the guilt within, upward I look and see him there who made an end of all my sin. Because Satan will tempt you to despair. The, the deceivers, whatever they are in your life, they will remind you of your shame. They will, they will scream out to you, uh, the voices that, that we hear, right, that God couldn't possibly forgive you. He couldn't possibly love you. He, he couldn't possibly want anything to do with you. And you'll hear that other places too, won't you? You'll accuse yourself. People around you will accuse you. People at, at work or school or, or, or whatever, right? The, the voices around us, the world preaches condemnation to us. That you'll never be good enough. No one could possibly love you. You're nothing. 
And kids, I, I hate to say this, those of you who are, who are younger, I mean, you're beginning to feel this already, aren't you? In your circumstance, you, you, maybe you feel it with a, a teacher or a coach. Maybe you even sometimes feel it with your parents, like this, this, this bar that you can't reach and you, you feel like you'll never measure up. You'll never grow out of that. And it hurts us. But no one can condemn who God has set free. Let God tell you who you are. Only let God tell you who you are. Because we're always, we're always listening to the voices, right? Voices around us, inside us. I mean, sometimes a lot of voices are our own. And, and maybe, maybe you think, you know, I'm a, I'm a free thinker. I'm independent. I dance to the rhythm of my own drum or whatever that phrase goes, right? But the reality is we're all listening to those voices, every one of us. Which voices are speaking loudest in your life? Which ones will you listen to? And will you let God tell you who you are? Because right now in this moment, if you, if you are his, if you trust in Christ, then he says to you in this moment, right here in this place, that there is nothing, nothing, nothing left to condemn you. That is who you are. And so this morning, we want to we celebrate that together. We, we want to rejoice in, in what God has done, what we believe he has accomplished for us. And we're going to do that in a variety of ways. But, but first off, we're going to take communion together. We're going we're to come to this table of, of death, a table of blood, a table of execution, right? And a table of joy. It's the great paradox of the Christian faith that the most horrible, gruesome event in human history, the, the, the death of the only innocent person who's ever lived, is also our source of greatest delight, of hope, of forgiveness, and of life. It's, it's quite a paradox. But we're going to take our time this morning. Uh, we're going to have a, a brief period of, of quiet, uh, just to sort of center ourselves, to pray, to reflect. Maybe, uh, maybe God spoke to you somehow this morning, and, and you just need to do some work with him before we go any further. So we're going to give some time for that. Um, and then some songs we'll, we'll play, several of them. And at any point the rest of the morning, uh, when you're ready to come up and take communion, come up and take communion. Um, there's not going to be any servers there. We're really just going to let this moment linger for the rest of our time together. Um, so if you want to wait, that's fine. If you want to come right away, that's fine too. We have four tables, two up in the front, two in the back. Take the bread, uh, dip it in the cup, uh, and, and feast. And, and when you come, though, see yourself on the cross. And see the God who made you and knows you and loves you. See him on the cross. And see life unleashed on the cross. So let's, let's pray quietly together now. And then whenever you're ready, please come.